Donald Trump has been under KGB surveillance since 1977. Since he was married to Ivana. Ivana's father was the reporting person to check intelligence on Donald Trump. <laughs> All of this is passed on to the KGB, which goes into a dossier or a folder that's marked Donald J. Trump from 1977 until suddenly Donald Trump meets the foreign minister of Russia in New York City and wants to go to Moscow to propose building a Trump Tower in Moscow in the Soviet Union. So now that guy gets on his typewriter, reports that back to Moscow. Moscow's foreign ministry gets a copy, and the other ministry that is the KGB gets a copy, and they go, get me the Donald Trump file. This guy, we've been collecting against him since 1977. Look at this guy. Narcissistic, greedy, manipulable, and now what you do is you assign a small team of two or three intelligence officers to do it. Young baby spies like Vladimir Putin. Malcolm Nance is a 36-year veteran of the Navy who ascended to the highest levels and fought in combat in multiple countries and learned all about counterterrorism, tactics, spying, everything. This is some super soldier, super spy, super man-ish. He's brilliant. He's tough. He's deeply patriotic. And he's written a book about the way Trump has betrayed America and the way Russia has lured him in called The Plot to Betray America. We talk about being a soldier, being a fighter, and what it is that Russia has over Trump. It's not what you think. It's Malcolm Nance on Torre Show. Malcolm, what is your favorite gun? <laughs> that's a loaded question. My favorite gun. That's a very strange question. But it's funny. It's one of those strange questions I actually have an answer to. Well, you're an expert in all sorts of things. And, so. I, and I am actually a gun collector. And I, I collect um, a whole series of uh, what I call clone weapons. These are weapons I would have carried or did carry when I was operating in the Middle East. So I have very, you know, they're all special operations configured <laughs> rifles. And I also have a collection of special operations sniper rifles. So my favorite, it's like asking what your favorite child is. But <laughs> there, you know, there are there are weapons that that have different different capabilities and the ones you know there are co highly collectible weapons and firearms and then there are those that you you really would practice on and i would say the the one that i'm that is probably the most collectible uh in my inventory is a um, special operations issue, naval special warfare issue. So it was the kind that were issued to the SEAL team. Full kit, except for the suppressor, you know, except for the silencer. Uh, and that's a, uh, it's called a Mark 11 Mod Zero. And it's a sniper rifle uh, that was standard issue throughout the entire Afghan war. Uh, Semi-automatic, looks like an AR-15, but it's a much bigger bullet. And it's very, very rare that they have the actual kit. Uh, what does which that mean, is, the kit? The kit is the actual case, exactly as it's issued to a SEAL team member. Everything that's inside it, with the exception of the suppressor, because the suppressor is a completely different ball of wax that you have to apply to the government to get. And so the optics in there, you know, the documentation, right down to the toolkit and the cleaning rod and everything, including all the paperwork. So it is a government issue weapon 
that I happen to get on the open market. They only have a couple of these every once in a while. How high did you get as a soldier? Not very high. I mean, you know, high is relative because there are, in most services, there are two branches, right? There's officer, which is when you go to university and you get a commission and you're a, you know, battlefield leader and you go from like lieutenant to general. And then enlisted. Enlisted is when you start from private or seaman and you work up to, you know, like sergeant major. But within the Navy, we actually have three differentiated sections. We have officers, we have enlisted, and then we have chiefs. And the Navy has this category chief because it required people who were technical experts on ships or systems and who would be the corporate knowledge of a ship, right? Officers come and go, right? They rise up in rank. They go off to other commands. Enlisted people, they come and go left and right. But chiefs are usually the lifers. And uh, those three ranks from E7, E8, and E9, uh, which is chief, senior chief, and master chief, they are in the Navy gods. We're, I mean, they have an, when they make chief, they have an entire two-month initiation process where you're educated and then you have a special, highly interesting ceremony where they initiate you into the Brotherhood of Chiefs. There's a creed for the chiefs. We wear khaki uniforms like the officers, uh, but with a different hat insignia that specifies you're a chief. That's Um, you. And I was a senior chief petty officer out of the three. So you have chief, senior chief, master chief. My dad was a master chief, which is as high as you can go uh, in the enlisted ranks. Uh, My brother was a senior chief. He used to drive atomic submarines. My dad worked in boiler systems back, you know, starting back in the 50s. Uh, So we have, you know, a, a few chiefs in our family. But being a chief is a global brotherhood. And I mean, I am obligated, you know, if someone who is a chief and can prove to me that he's a Navy chief and he asked me a question straight up, I am obligated to give him a straight up answer. And this is where sort of my claim to fame came came in. Uh, when I was at MSNBC, uh, you know, I was the terrorism analyst. I still am. And they brought me on as a military member, former military member, to talk about how Donald Trump was insulting the Gold Star families. And I was on uh, camera with a guy named uh, Steve Cortez, who is a conservative talker. And he insulted Kazir Khan and, uh, and his wife in front of me. And I went to a place that you generally do not see. Right. I went right back to the very moment that I was still in the Navy and a senior chief petty officer. And I turned on him and I gave him the full blast of what any poor, dumb, stupid soldier who came across me and did a mistake would get. And I just chewed him out on national TV. And the funny thing is, there's this little technique we use when we're really angry. We put our left hand on our hip and our right hand comes out into a flat palmed, like I'm going to slap you and it bends at the elbow. And that's called the blade hand. And that means you are really angry and you are serving it to him, right? I didn't even know I was doing that. I had chiefs around the world write to me and said, you did it right. 
you were blade handing that guy. <laughs> and I was like, I did what? And they were like, he were like, that's right, right on, chief. You went full senior chief on that guy. And I said, well, I just was not going to allow a family that had sacrificed their son for us to be insulted in front of me. And so, you know, the chief world, for anyone who knows chiefs or was in the Navy, it's different from like sergeant majors. I mean, all chiefs are revered and feared. And we have our own little spaces on ships and at commands called the goat locker. Because in the oldie days, Navy, they all had like those little wispy beards, you know, at the chin, like Kung Fu beards. And they would live in a place near where the goats were stored, right? The, the old goats locker. So all spaces for chiefs where you were, to, which you can't come into. You just can't walk into it, right? You have to have permission. Officers have to have permission to come into it. Uh, it's called the goat locker. I even have a goat locker in my house. So are you also a spy? Well, I'm naval intelligence. I was, as a matter of fact, uh, and I use naval intelligence sort of euphemistically to sort of stay away from where I really was. But now that I'm, I'm out and about, everyone knows uh, I was a naval cryptologist, which is a code breaker. That's what cryptology is, is the study of breaking codes. And the cryptologic field is the field that since, oh, really formally organized just before World War II where we studied, let me give it to you, I can't tell you what we do in the modern world, but I'm going to tell you what we did in World War II. So if you watch the Battle of Midway movie, the old one, not the new one, um, you will understand that we intercept Japanese communications, for example, back then that were being broadcast or put out by Morse code. We would intercept that, and those messages could be in plain voice, and so we would understand it. So we'd have a Japanese linguist listen to it. And then if it was encoded, it was sent in like Morse code or some other machine. Uh, and then cryptologists would actually work that code backwards and break the code, which of course would come out into Japanese. And then cryptologic linguist, which is like what I was, would translate and interpret and determine the intelligence value of that. So that's how it was done. That's how we actually won the Battle of Midway. A team of uh, communications intercept operators were collecting Japanese naval codes, and a brilliant team, including led by a guy who used to play poker with Japan's naval commander, Yamamoto, when he was a liaison officer in Japan who was fluent in Japanese, named uh, Commander Rochefort, um, actually broke the code of the Japanese Navy prior to Midway, the JN-25 code. And they could, they could read the Japanese orders. So they know where they're going. And they said the Japanese fleet, which has now disappeared, is northwest of Midway Island. They are going to invade Midway with an amphibious fleet. And there are six Japanese aircraft carriers out there. And they don't know where we are. And so we snuck up on them knowing precisely where they were. Uh, bombed them and sank, I, I believe, five out of six of the Japanese carriers. Can you talk about or can you name some of the battles that we might have heard of that you've been a part of? Yeah, there's a few. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, in my world, there, in, and this goes back to the word spy, by the way, we use it euphemistically because anyone who's an intelligence collector technically is spying. Uh, and I am on the board of the International Spy Museum in Washington. Um, so, yes, 
Um, some of the operations that I was involved in, you might have known about. Uh, I was in Beirut in 1983 before the Marine barracks bombing killed 243 Marines. I was there for the, as a matter of fact, I arrived the, the day before the American embassy was bombed and they killed all of the CIA staff in that bombing, wow. nine CIA officers. And that day, I mean, I was 19 years old and I became one of the only five people still left in the country that could speak Arabic. And me and a couple of Marine, you know, cryptologists were U.S. intelligence collection capability in Lebanon that day, you know, and you're just like, good morning. Uh, we don't know what's going on in this country. Everybody got killed. Now you guys need to start a collecting and getting us information. So yeah, Beirut, uh, the, the first American embassy bombing, the second American embassy bombing, all the hostages that were taken in Lebanon, 76 Western hostages, uh, I collected against, tried to, to isolate and find them. TWA-847 hijacking, I was deeply, deeply involved in that. That loss, that resulted in the loss of a Navy sailor, um, you know, uh, Robert Dean Steedham. Um, then uh, going on the war, the mini wars we had with Iran in 1988, I was actually in a naval battle, a missile battle called the Battle of Siri Island, uh, where we literally f blew up an oil platform got into a ship-to-ship -ship missile battle with an Iranian missile ship boat, which almost got us. The missile missed us by 150 feet. <laughs> and then we sank the ever-living heck out of him. And uh, then we shot down an airplane that came out to attack us. And all of this happened in a span of a few hours. But these were public things. You just don't know what's going on in the background. I mean, there's constant intelligence collection to predict and identify what the enemy's doing. Um, you know, I was involved deeply in the first Gulf War. Uh, I did all sorts of operations in the first Gulf War. I mean, I went was on ships and then I went ashore with uh, explosive ordnance disposal teams. Uh, I found enemy missile batteries and sensitive intelligence. I went into Iraq and did a bunch of stuff. By the way, that's how we talk about stuff that we're not going to talk about. Did a bunch of stuff. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I did some things I am, and I did them there. I am curious to hear <laughs> as best as you can. Perhaps one of your hairiest war stories that you can tell. Hmm. Yeah, we were telling war stories earlier today. Um, hairy is a is a relative term because we've now been in combat for a very long time. And when I retired from the military, I just became an intelligence uh, an intelligence subcontractor, which means that I did very similar jobs for agencies on contract uh, that were very hairy. Um, and I, I'm going to tell you the funniest one, which is going to be in one of my memoirs. One of the funniest these days. war story. Okay. Oh no, because it's it was the most dangerous thing I did in Iraq, and um, I uh, I dealt only with Iraqis, and so I had an Iraqi uh, group uh, that were working for me. They were intelligence subcontractors. We were doing things that we did not want Americans around. Right. American around bad. So I was the only American and they, you know, and I'm African-American. So I, I don't blend in as well. I'm just more explainable. Like I might be Sudanese or I might be somebody else who is just there and trapped there or whatever. And we operated out of a safe house in West Baghdad and we we drove around. My my ride was not an armored Humvee. My ride was a BMW 735i. 
and just blacked out windows. And, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of BMWs that came down from Turkey uh, right after Iraq opened up. So I we could roll around clandestinely, you know, and uh, wasn't armored. It was just a regular old BMW. But, you know, we kept that engine tuned up, right? And, uh, you know, we had a driver who was smart enough to know when it was drive to, time to drive up and down the sidewalks, when it was time to escape. And we were just packed with guns. I mean, you know, we were we were rolling around with everyone had submachine guns or a squad automatic weapon or something like that. So one night I was in my safe house and I have next to me the radio system for all the facilities we're either guarding or watching. And... <clears throat> In the middle of the night, I, I, my, it, it's all in Arabic, right? So it's like blah, 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 right? And then I would always wake up when something out of the ordinary was happening, right? And I'm hearing the Arabic, and the Arabic is like, call the chief, call the chief, because they called me chief, right? And so I go, I wake up, and I instantly, and I, I immediately get dressed. I don't, I don't wait, because, you know, you never know. It could be a battle or something. Finally, I get on the radio, and I go, what's going on? And they were like, there's a problem out at Site 6. And Site 6 was a complex of safe houses we were guarding that belonged to somebody else that were not in the green zone, okay? They were somewhere else. And somewhere else was the rest of Iraq, right? And that's dangerous. So I'm like, what's going on? They said, there's a problem at Site 6. And I said, what's going on? And they said, I don't know, but they turned on all the floodlights. And I was like, floodlights? Are you out of your mind, right? Every terrorist in the country, it's one in the morning, is coming for us, right? Turn off the floodlights. They said, they can't, they're scared, right? And I'm like, what do you mean scared? So I said, okay, we're going to QRF. We're going to quick reaction force over there in our like two BMWs. There's eight of us. So I get all the the, the squad that I'm with up and uh, including guys who like to fight. I had two guys who really liked to fight. And uh, one of them was an Iraqi national bodybuilder, bodybuilding champion. And it was just amazing. And the funny thing is he liked that little tiny HK, you know, um, uh, this tiny HK submachine gun they called the rabbit, <laughs> you know, and uh, MP5K for those of you who are experts out there. And it's a tiny little submachine gun that you can barely conceal in a, in a suitcase or under your arm. And he just loved that gun. But it would squirt out like 30 bullets in a few seconds. So we jump into our vehicles, and I'm like, this is the most dangerous thing I have ever done, was to get into two blacked-out, unmarked BMWs in Baghdad in the middle of the night in 2004, which was the beginning of the wave of insurgency where Al-Qaeda could just go wherever they please. And they would just walk up to you at ice cream and shoot you in the back of the head. They own that place, right? And then you had Saddam Fedayeen commandos, which were Saddam's terrorist forces that were 80% of the terrorists we were fighting. And so I'm like, this is dangerous. You know, we're in the car, we are strapped. And I'm like... If there's a Bradley, you know, a U.S. Army checkpoint with a Bradley armored vehicle, we are going to get vaporized. They are not going to ask us for our passes or if we work for, you know, some agency. They're just going to hose us down with 30 millimeter chain gun. And then they'll go, oh, this guy was U.S. Oh, too bad. <laughs> and so fortunately, we made our way to the site and there was no checkpoints. And I was just praying to God. I mean, I turned on an infrared strobe. I put one on the roof of the car. And then I thought, oh my God, some of these Al-Qaeda guys have infrared detectors. So they're going to know we're blue forces. So they're going to kill us too. Oh, just dangerous. 
Finally, we roll into the site and all the guards are away from their posts and at the front gate under floodlights. It's like a giant neon sign that says, please kill all of us right now, right here. And I'm like, you know, Shusanmak, right? What's going on here, right? And they were like, chief, chief, big problem. And I'm like, what big problem? And he goes, I'll never forget, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Dajin. And I said, what? He says, Dajin, chief, Dajin. And I said, are you telling me that you are seeing genies? And they go, yes, chief, Dajin, there is Dajin there. And I'm like, you, I just rolled through Baghdad in the middle of the night. And you're telling me your sight has been illuminated because of you're seeing effing genies? Ghosts. Genies. <laughs> like genies, the spirit from the Quran who grant you three wishes. <laughs> <laughs> they believe them because they are part of the Quranic tradition. Genies are between spirits and men. They interact with men. They marry women and have sex with them and have genie babies. Um, and they were thoroughly convinced that they had seen genies and they all abandoned their posts and were standing under the floodlights to ward off the genies. So I was just like, okay, that's it. <laughs> so I go up and I'm like, where? You show me effing genies. Okay. And uh, I'm really angry. I mean, this is literally the most dangerous thing I've done in my life was leave a safe house at night and you didn't have, you know, helicopter gunships on your side. And in fact, the helicopter gunships should have shot our asses on our way over there. Right. If they had been seeing us with guns, they don't ask questions in Iraq. They just kill. And, you know, so I, they go take me to the top of the roof and they said, they saw them over there, chief. They saw them over there. And, um, so I go up there and I go, and the guy's just gone. He takes me up, he leaves. <laughs> he doesn't even wait around. So I go, what the hell? So I have night vision, right? So I let my eyes adjust. And then, uh, you know, I, about 10 minutes, I'm listening, I'm watching, and I'm like, what the hell? And they said that they had seen, uh, that they had seen his red eyes or something like that, and he was floating in the air. And I was like, so I put my nods on, right, my night, night vision goggles, and I look out there, and I'm like, there's nothing out here. There is nothing out here. And I have, my rifle has an illuminator on it, which will flood you with infrared light. You can't see it. It's in the infrared spectrum. So I wash over with my infrared, and I don't see anything at all. And then after a minute or so, a tiny light flickered over there. And if you had had your just visual eye you wouldn't have seen it right it's just night and finally i said you know what someone's got night vision goggles on over there and i go i look out there and i said here's what i'm gonna do i put on my laser and the only way you can see that laser is if you have night vision goggles on and it's a boom pencil beam of high intensity laser light and i put it right on that right and suddenly the light moves because he sees that i see him and he's got night observation devices on because he sees my laser on him and then i i go black i turn everything off and i go army or marines <laughs> real quietly i just go army or marines you don't whisper because whispers carry too far. And I knew, I said, some, one of our people are out here on top of our buildings and somehow our people saw them and confused night vision with glowing eyes. And so after a few minutes, you're just sitting there, nothing, right? Then he goes, 
army. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. I said, my people think you're effing genies. Right? And he, I said, genies, like three wishes genies, because they saw your nods, and they were wearing a ghillie suit, a camouflage suit that makes you look like bushes. And I go, I'm going to leave now, and you are going to shift your post. We're going to give you 15 minutes. You can just walk out. Nobody sees you. No one's going to know which direction you went, but you need to move off this site. And then I hear them start giggling because <laughs> like, <laughs> they're laughing that my, my Iraqi guards think they're genies, Right. And I, it's just, I went storming down the steps, you know, like a Papa Smurf. I was just <laughs> furious, like, genies. And I'm like, Mahujin, there's no gene up there. And they're like, oh, I watch you. If there's gene up there, there's gene. And I'm like, I couldn't convince them. I'm like, we're all sleeping here. No one's leaving this site until daylight, okay? Because you think I'm going to go back to my house and get vaporized by a AC-130 gunship or accidentally run into an Al-Qaeda ambush, not leaving here. I'm sleeping on the ground right in front of this place. Turn off the floodlights. So that was an incredible story. And I know you were scared in that story. Can you tell a story that's not funny where you actually really were scared? Oh, yeah. Well, that happens all the time. I mean, um, uh, we accidentally ran into an ambush that was not us. And that was scary. And that was like, oh, I got to take a piss right now, scary. It's called a fear piss, by the way. That's what we call it, which is why we have little containers with us in the car all the time. So we were in the Karada district of Baghdad, and I was running a two-car team, and there were only five of us. And I was in the lead car in the rear. So, and, and we, have, so we put two Iraqis in the front seat of each car. So that's four. And I was the fifth because I was the, the principal. And I'm armed because there's no such thing as not being armed in Baghdad. I'm the fifth gun on this movement. And I can't remember what we were doing. We were going through Karada. And Karada's always getting zapped, right? Suicide bombers and everything. They blew up a mall there that killed like 800 people uh, at one time. And uh, there was a a high-profile Western security contractor convoy in front of us of three vehicles. And they're armored. And, uh, you know, there was this one section of Karata I always thought was sketchy because they have arches, they have arched sidewalks, which means there are path, you know, it's sort of like scaffolding, okay. only these are stone and they have arches in them. And for, for that two years, I was just like, I just don't get those, right? Why did they need those there? And it was just stylistic, but it gives you cover, right? It gives you hard cover. And those two vehicles were about 10 car lengths ahead of us when traffic was moving like five miles per hour. And then we hear, you know, a, a heavy machine gun, a PKM machine gun go off and start blasting away on the lead vehicle, the convoy coming from above. And then we saw AK got men with AK-47s in both sides hosing this convoy down hosing it down and they're trying to get through by just driving into traffic and smashing cars in front of them they're getting hit and you're going to lose your armor integrity at some point and then i was like and i was about to say to everybody on the radio stand by you know in arabic and tether right this is not us right it's not us it's not our game because you know you don't know how many guns are out there 
And we had a guy, I can't say his name, but he was a young soccer player, a really good soccer player. And, uh, you know, for that few seconds, I'm evaluating how many guns are going off. And we're, we're all loading, we're locking and loading, you know, and I'm telling uh, the driver, hey, don't, don't, don't touch your guns. We're going we're gonna to either back out of here, we're going to smash our way out, or we're going to just pretend like we're not here, right? And what's going on up there is them, you know? And uh, the guy, our soccer player, you know, um, he is the squad automatic weapon. That's a light U.S. machine gun. Uh, and he wasn't having it. He saw somebody, he evaluated it as a danger, and he dismounted. He just, he got out. And so the rear car was doors open and dismounting, which is our sign for mutual defense, right? So we, I'm like, oh, we're doing this. This isn't good. <laughs> right? So I go, okay, dismount, 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 right? Which is the order. And you say it in English so that there's no confusion in the Arabic. To get out right? of the car. To get out, get out of the car, right? We're moving. Either we're going to abandon the car or we're going to fight. And in this thing, it was, we're going to fight. Because Ali went left to this wall after he had dismounted, and he had seen two of these guys who were doing the ambush in the arches. And, it, you know, these guys are from Baghdad, so they know those arches. And Ali just, uh, or the, the driver, uh, no, the, the squad guy, he went over to that wall, and with a squad automatic weapon, he just hosed two guys down. He broke the ambush right there. And then we saw, I was like, you know, you know, uh, what do we call it? Kitali to Kadam, right? Battle forward. And that means just keep pushing forward, move to the next arch. And uh, by breaking the, by killing those two guys, uh, it broke the ambush. And then the armored vehicles saw a pathway out and they pushed a car out of their way. And I mean, these are armored suburbans, right? And they just smashed into the car and drove it out of the way. And all three cars got out of the ambush. And so when the PKM machine guns guy saw two of his two of his four guys go down, he just lost fifty percent strength. They decided there was something happening down there that they couldn't do deal with, and it was time to go. So they broke the assault on the Americans who were in those vehicles. We have uh, the company was called Control Risk, and I almost contracted them. And we later went to them. We were like, "Hey, you see the skinny little Iraqi soccer player? Yeah, he broke your assault yesterday." And they were like, "Yeah, yeah, good on you, mate. F you." And that was it. You know, I mean, they were just jerks, you know, but it was just phenomenal because he was behind me. He could see something I couldn't see. And he's forcing me to get out of my protection. And now black guy with an M4, you know, Iraqis with HK submachine guns. We look like something, right? We're not just, you know, guys on the street who are riding in their BMWs. Now we're bringing the target to us. And so I'd take a big piss after that. You talk about guys who really like to fight. Are you there? Are you a guy who loves to fight? No, no, <laughs> that's not my job. My job there was to collect intelligence that U S forces couldn't collect using people that U S forces, um, sh shouldn't be seen with, right? You don't want to come out with, if you got an entire organization of Iraqis, right? The minute they see an American, you're compromised. You know, and that says, oh, those guys are something. They're special, you know, and it's not like they're Iraqi army because we weren't riding around in armored vehicles. We were, you know, in BMWs. And you don't know. You don't know if the guy who's on the street corner is Al Qaeda's reconnaissance man, you know, and he's, he sees the safe house you turn into. And then the next night, a suicide bomb truck pulls up in front of you. I mean, one of our neighbors um, was, well, not one of our neighbors. 
we had we lived near Ahmed Chalabi, who was the guy who conned us into the Iraq War, mm -hmm. and we were a couple of blocks away from him in in the uh, in the Harthia district of Baghdad, and somebody went to go get this guy. Right, that's that's what we call it when they send a suicide bomber, and um, the bomber uh, prematurely detonated because they keep a separate trigger team away from you so that if you get frightened they're going to blow that vehicle anyway. So the bomber was supposed to wait for a convoy with Chalabi in it. The convoy came and it turned left in front of him and the bomber got scared. So the bomber didn't go off his mark so that he would be next to the Chalabi convoy. But it was a very heavily populated neighborhood. So there's two down the block are two guys with the actual detonator and they're watching you. So if you chicken out, they they blow your vehicle and you, you, you're a martyr anyway. So he chickened out and turned left and he went into our neighborhood, which was a shopping district. And the trigger man just blew the vehicle and his torso, the rear part of his torso landed on our doorstep. And I have a photograph in my, in my book, uh, and, and uh, no, um, the terrorists of Iraq, which was an analysis of Every terrorist group that was operating in Iraq, I had done while I was in Iraq. I have a photograph of somebody getting ready to put a, a sheet over it. And we had to use like a shovel to, to, to roll that guy out of there. But those things are terrifying for a second. I want to talk about your, your book about Trump. Before we get yeah. to that, can you just talk about the mentality that a soldier has to have? I mean, I, I know that you, you train for everything. So I know you train the mind to be you know, ready to go and to be selfless and to be, you know, mercenary and be ready to kill. And like, what is the mindset that you, that you want people to have? Well, you know, that's really sort of what they're trying to, you know, instill in you if you're a Marine or your army. I was Navy. And, uh, but, you know, I was not a SEAL, by the way, I'm a spy. And so you really have to have a mindset in your head anyway. And then what you do is you emulate the people that you're around. So I worked around a lot of SEALs, a lot of special operations personnel, right? Joint special operations, a lot of CIA officers, uh, you know, they're paramilitary people because our job there was to acquire information, uh, assets and resources that other Westerners didn't, you know, you didn't want Westerners around. You wanted only Iraqis to handle. So if you wanted to follow an, uh, you know, an, an, uh, a Saddam Fedayeen general, you don't use Americans to do that, right? You use Iraqis and you use a bunch of Iraqis so that they never see the same guys twice. And that, but you have to have a point of contact for that. And so I just think I had a natural mindset for this. Uh, and that mindset was, uh, I'm not getting hurt. My guys are not getting hurt. Anybody gets in our way is getting hurt. And, you know, it's a very positive mindset. And I'd seen that in, you know, I'd worked with uh, these JSOC guys, and, and it was a really aggressive mindset. Uh, How do you block out the fear? The fear? You're not afraid unless you're a naturally afraid person. If you're doing your job, right, you've got to really sort of choke it down. And those, it was only that I had more surprise in that ambush, and more worry for the convoy in front of me. I was like, oh, oh, that's not going to be good. They're going to, if they keep shooting on these guys, they're going to be hurting. And I, then I look back and they're like, uh, this guy is dismounting. 
And I'm like, what? Now you get a little tickle, you know, and then you start going, oh, that's not going to be good. But if you don't do something, you're now committed and it could be worse. I mean, you, 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 that flash of you all dead in the car with your guns on your lap goes through your head. So you're more attuned to just taking action. But my job was to be off the radar. It was not to be engaging the enemy. It was not, you know, I mean, I had resources and assets and people that we liaise with. If I needed to bring a Hellfire missile down, I had the number on the phone, you know, but they will send their own reconnaissance out or they'll task a helicopter or a satellite. And then they'll be like, yeah, thanks, man. Stand by and boom, the building blows up. And it's just like, nobody saw me. I'm not here. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. But what's the difference between being a good soldier and being a great soldier? Well, you know, let me talk more about the people that I know. Yeah. Um, because I knew people in the intelligence community 
And we're talking, again, this world we're in is sort of like, you know, this isn't cryptologic collection. I did, you know, special operations cryptology. Uh, and you might recall we, we lost one this year who was a legacy person from my world, uh, Chief uh, Shannon Kent, senior chief, I guess she was promoted to. And she was doing human intelligence as a Navy cryptologist, Arabic interpreter in Syria, uh, alongside of special operations, a special operations officer, an interpreter, and a uh, a defense intelligence agency, a human intelligence officer. But the really great ones don't get killed, or if they do, it's God's will. The mission is really. It depends. If you're a door kicker like JSOC operators, that's Del- that's national mission units, right? Rangers, Delta, SEAL Team Six, or any special forces ODA or any SEAL platoon, your job is to break things, and you're to break them good. And on the intelligence collection side, our job is to collect data so that we can send those, you know, the 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 door kickers, right? the pipe hitters, we call them, send them in to go, you know, do the, you know, out of the darky night sort of thing. But we operate in environments where we can't be defenseless. The people who I saw were really good. Let's split those two worlds. Um, I knew special operations soldiers. I, I know some, you know, guys now, even our director at the spy museum, Dan Cole, who was a army special operations human intelligence guy, who took over human intelligence and special ops for the SEALs and went to Afghanistan and he did all sorts of crazy, you know, crazy, dangerous stuff. Those guys are really relatively soft-spoken. They are not the, you know, ura ura, let's kill everybody. They're very well educated and they understood the environment they were operating in. Uh, and they emulated some of the great people in global intelligence. One of my my role model is a guy by the name of, uh, you know, Sir Richard Burton, not the actor. It was a he was an an English and he was an English master of languages in the late eighteen hundreds, and he spoke twenty eight different languages. Wow. Uh, started out in India, mastered Arabic to a doctorate level fluency, and then mastered dirty street Arabic in like 10 dialects. Wow. And he was the first person uh, to actually, first Englishman to infiltrate Mecca, to go to Mecca as a Muslim. And he saw himself as a Muslim, so he didn't have a problem with it. But every Muslim there was ready to kill him if they had found out that he was English. And he went in, and I mean, he, he inspected the Kaaba, the, where, and he measured the meteorite that's held inside there. And he went pretending to be a Syrian doctor. And so he also practiced medicine on all the hajis who were there. And he was very popular. Whereas, you know, Lawrence of Arabia was just a liaison officer attached there who spoke Arabic, who he also managed to, to pass himself off as a blonde-haired Syrian. There's a couple of other wartime questions that I want to get into, but okay. your book is extraordinary. The sure. plot to betray America, yeah. the third in a trilogy, right. and you lay out with almost lawyer-like precision uh, the relationship between Trump and Russia. Yeah. And when you finish reading this, you're like, yes, he has been controlled not just by Putin, but by Russian oligarchs. Yeah for many decades. And as we spoke on this before, the first thing that 
one does when you want to try to get somebody to betray something is to see what is your financial point. And there is some level at which we can say, how about if we give you this amount of money? And they'll say, okay, I'll give you up. I'll give you my mother. Yeah. <laughs> at that amount you know, of money and that is what it, so we we it, there's a there's a popular notion that there's some compromise that there's some video or some secret that Putin has but your argument is no Putin has said you can make this amount of money mm-hmm. while we're going to let you do a Moscow Trump hotel right. and you're going to make a ton of money and because of that Trump has been like yes I'll do whatever you want. Well, it goes deeper than that and and actually within the intelligence community we do that. We buy people. Uh I've been on operations where it's it's sort of a joke, a euphemistic joke, but I've actually heard this phrase, I'm going to start putting gold bars on the table and you tell me when you can't carry it out. <laughs> All right? And then you start you know, for, you know, what we call crown jewels intelligence, just stuff where you're buying everything in that government safe. And I, I didn't believe in that actually for a very long time till one day I saw crown jewels intelligence and I thought, did he use a backhoe to move the gold? (laughs) Because, because it was, as, as I was looking at this information, uh, which was, which saved thousands of people and, and, and stopped a war, I looked at it and I thought, that's a backhoe. That guy probably got a ton of gold a pro- and sworn in as a U.S. citizen on the spot and extracted at the end of the operation and probably owns half of West Hollywood. You know, because, And then I thought, and it would be worth it. Uh, that's sometimes how we do it. Usually, especially when you're talking about the Russians, you're talking about cheap people. But with characters like Donald Trump, they the Russians targeted for a very long time under the KGB, they targeted conservatives. They targeted conservatives because they wanted people who were self-serving and avaricious and who had no ideological links to them. And that would give them greater credibility. And so as I spell out in the book, Donald Trump has been under KGB surveillance since 1977. Since he was married to Ivana. Right. Since because she came from the old Czech Republic. That's correct. So and there was communists watching him, paying attention to him at that she, point. Actually, the agency is the STV. That was the subordinate Czech intelligence agency that reported directly to the KGB. And of course, their collective job in Warsaw Pact intelligence, that was Russia's version of NATO, was to turn Westerners would come and visit your country, turn them into spies, and then send them back to the West to collect intelligence for you. But you're not saying he's a spy. No, no, no. I'm I'm just spelling out what Russian intelligence did with these subordinate agencies. Ivana's father was the reporting person to check intelligence on Donald (laughs) Trump. And the way we know this is the Guardian and a German paper, along with a Czech newspaper, did extensive record collection, and they have all the written records and reports from 1977 to 1988. And they have them all. They have all the reporting. And in fact, there's one where they knew where they knew Donald Trump was considering running for president in 1988 because Ivana had discussed it with her father over the phone. The phones had what we call 100% coverage, which means that when, when that phone rings from New York City, Tapes are rolling in a couple of offices, always. They collected every word that was ever said between Ivana and her father 
or Donald and whoever in that country. And so they had extensive amount of information about him. When you build that database, now you get to build a profile of this person. Not just what you see, not just what you hear. You get to cross-reference known intelligence that comes from a source that doesn't think you know it, which is like listening to your phone calls. And since I come from the signals intelligence world of NSA, big believer in what we call first-person collection. If you tell me everything, You're not lying to me because you don't know I'm the third person on the call. So you're going to either tell the other person the truth or you're going to tell the other person a lie. But either way, I'm going to know both ends of that. And then I can exploit you and we can turn that over to other agencies like the CIA or whatever. So if the Czech intelligence are collecting on him, they have enormous thousands of hours or, 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 or of data collection and reports that are coming from the father who is being very loyal. Otherwise, he's going to get in trouble with the KGB. And all of this is passed on to the KGB, which goes into a dossier or a folder or a safe that's marked Donald J. Trump from 1977 until suddenly Donald Trump goes, meets the foreign minister of Russia in New York City and wants to go to Moscow to propose building a Trump Tower Moscow in the Soviet Union. So now that guy gets on his typewriter, reports that back to Moscow. Moscow's foreign ministry gets a copy and the other ministry that is the KGB gets a copy and they go, get to me the Donald Trump file. All right. And they go, this guy, we've been collecting against him since 1977. Look at this guy narcissistic, greedy, manipulable. And now what you do is you assign a small team of two or three intelligence officers, you know, human intelligence officers to do it. Young baby spies usually, right? You want to get them working on it. Young baby spies like Vladimir Putin, who is now, you know, who's in West Germany, East Germany, and his job is to manipulate people to become spies. But sometimes you don't want them to become spies. You're going to let them do what they're doing and keep talking so that you can get another perspective on your enemies. And so Donald Trump initially became essentially a source without him knowing, or what we call an unwitting asset. He doesn't know that they're doing this. But then, fast forward, he's taking in all this money. When Russia, the Soviet Union collapses, Russia opens up, and the Russians liquidate every government asset, which is everything from every cow was owned by the government, every taxi, every trash can, every every apartment in the country was owned by the government, and they all made up false deeds, sold them for like you know a penny on a dollar, and then became billionaires and every asset in that country was privatized in a matter of a couple of years. And whoever owned those pieces of paper were the owners of them and could resell them for billions. That's what Vladimir Putin did to the city of St. Petersburg, Russia, also known as Leningrad. And Putin did it using his KGB friends and family. And the best way, the way that he really did it was he reined in the full-time professional Soviet mafia using KGB tactics to the point where he could go to them and say, listen, we're not going to kill all of you. Us going, you know, you going to war with the KGB is no fun. We're gonna, just going to give you a solid 20% and let you do whatever you want, but you're going to work for us. So there's not, it's not that Putin has a stick or a secret. It's that he has a massive carrot that Trump wants more money. I think it's a combination of things. I think that Putin... Now, what I'm doing is I'm giving you an idea of how Putin became rich 
and how all of that rich money started flowing to the Trump organization because all those dirty Russians who were stealing assets had, you know, literally dump trucks full of U.S. and European cash, and they had to launder it somewhere. So they did it by laundering, by buying real estate all over the world. I was just in the village, uh, the town of Baden-Baden, Germany, which was a traditional town for the czars in the 1800s. The Russians over the last 20 years have come in and essentially bought that city. <laughs> they were, they, every house that used to belong to a Russian nobility has been bought by an oligarch, you know, and they, they like, but they have to spend their money somewhere because it's all illicit. So they started buying properties all over the United States and in New York City and in Miami and in Mar-a-Lago and all these other places. And that's where Donald Trump fell in love with their money. He knew there was money there before when he wanted that Trump Tower 1, 1.0 project. But now he's seeing no Soviet ideology, just rich capitalists with boatloads of money and hot women who will get naked in a second. And that moves you up to the Miss Universe pageant in 2014, where Trump was now introduced to hot women who want to get naked. And then he sat down with the 12 richest oligarchs of Russia, including a personal representative of Putin for a two hour private meeting. And when he walked out, his entire, the first thing he said was Trump Tower Moscow is going to be built, which would yield him $3 billion in profit. And then um, he, who knows what they promised him, but you have to understand from that minute on, his entire worldview, right up till this morning with whatever he tweeted, was Moscow's worldview. He was, it's like Vladimir Putin as now spy master in chief of Russia, who owns Russia, who controls the entire oligarchy and every dollar in Russia, crafted a pair of rose-colored lenses for Donald Trump. And using those oligarchs metaphorically put them on his eyes at Miss Universe. And so now Donald Trump only sees the world through their tint. And that tint always benefits Moscow. He, he only speaks favorably of Moscow. Sure. Putin. Always. Ever. Listen, it's, if you have a bookie and you're in debt, do you ever insult your bookie? No, but he, but he's not. Well, but he's not in debt to them, is he? Well, he just thinks well, that well, he can make more money. In fact, them. the reporting shows that Deutsche Bank, all the loans he got from Deutsche Bank, were underwritten by by oligarchs in Moscow. Well, that's one of the most revelatory moments in the book for me. That yes. at the moment when he, one of the six moments when he declares bankruptcy, yeah, uh, and no legitimate lender, no American bank will lend to him, and Deutsche Bank comes in. And helps him out, and you're like, and Deutsche Bank they, is propped up by Russian oligarchs. Well, it wasn't that they came in to help him. All loans have to be underwritten. It wasn't like, hey, you're a swinging guy. Let's just give you $460 million. Someone guaranteed that loan. Right. Now you have to start wondering, was that loan guaranteed because someone had been monitoring him and saw him as a national asset that they could use to continue laundering money or were they setting him up to where they would under where they would use him at some future date in American politics. And you're saying at this point he has gone from unwitting asset to, to a witting, witting asset? asset. And I start the book off with the very day that he became a witting asset, July 27, 2016, which was the day he said Russia if you're listening. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I want you to release all 33,000 of Hillary Clinton's emails. He knew, and the Mueller report validates every word that I have written in the last three years in three books. And they, where he knew he was operations being carried out in his interest and that he stood to benefit from those operations by Russia. And five hours later... Russian intelligence started attempts to intrude on Hillary Clinton's server, which was never, ever hacked. It's an extraordinary book, and especially for folks who really want to understand what's really going on between Trump and Russia, should absolutely read this. There's two more points that I would like, because you have a, just a gigantic wealth of information. And one thing that you used to do, or perhaps you still do, is teach people how to survive being a prisoner of war. <laughs> yeah. So just in case... Anybody who's listening should ever have the misfortune of becoming a POW. What are the what are the the points that you would like them to know how to survive that situation? Well, well, first off, if they're your listeners and they're not in the military and they're not what we categorize as high risk of capture, they won't be a POW. Uh, there's technical terms. There's three categories of detention, and I'll give you examples of each. Um, if you're a civilian and ISIS comes and they raid through your village and you're in West Africa and they take you, you are now a terrorist hostage. Okay. Same thing as if there's a guy at the Seven Eleven and he does what we call a panic hostage taking. And it's like, give me chiclets or I will kill everybody in this store. <laughs> you know, that's a panicked hostage. By the way, we usually just shoot at that point. Or, you know, it's hard to negotiate. Um, terrorists, on the other hand, there's a certain set of behaviors you had better be trained on before you become a hostage in a terrorist situation. Because opening your mouth in the first hours of that or days of that is very bad. You never want to have that discussion with a terrorist because they are hyped up and they have a, an agenda and they will kill you because they require, generally require to show uh, that they exercise power and control. And that's what we call when they just shoot a hostage. 
It's just like, oh, well, listen. And I, I was actually the chief of training for the U.S. Navy's terrorist hostage survival program. Uh, and we actually would have these scenarios where students would just be stupid. And they were just like, excuse me, sir. And I'm like, oh, you like to talk? You like to talk? He's like, sir, uh, I think that, you know, we need water in here. And it's like the first five minutes of the abduction. And I'm like, bring this one to me on your knees, right? And then, you know, I say, open the door. And this actually happened. Everything we taught actually happened. And I was simulating the execution of, you know, poor Robert Dean Steedham. And we would say, do any of you want a warship named after you? And they were like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. And I go, the only way you're getting a warship named after you is you do something stupid and you get your brains blown out. Robert Dean Steedham didn't do anything stupid. He was identified as a U.S. Navy service member. He was bought out and he was executed. But we teach the next person that opens your mouth, you are bringing yourself to the attention of the terrorist captor and you're going to get shot. So that's terrorist hostage. So the next say class. Say nothing. Say nothing. If you are a what soldier, if you're being asked direct questions, then answer the questions and be forthright and look them in the eye. Unless he, unless, or generally want you to look down. But if they ask you a question, if you look them in the eye, what's going to happen is what we call reverse Stockholm syndrome, where they will affiliate with you and see you as a human. If you're constantly looking down, look down until they tell you to look up. And if you look down, you're an object and they package you as an object. They tie you up to where it's easier to just kill you. So you constantly want to try to find opportunities after the first day or so to show yourself as a human, like, sir, I, I need a glass of water. Sir, I need it. And if they slap, you take it as a victory because it's, it shows your, your, they will themselves think about your humanity after laying hands on you. So there's a whole school you have to go to in order to, to survive that. And I ran that school. We also ran the prisoner of war school. And that was you're a military pilot or you're a SEAL or you're a Marine Scout sniper, a helicopter pilot, whatever. And you have the risk of being shot down behind enemy lines and captured. Uh, and that it follows the Geneva Convention. And we teach you all of that. And we teach you it's going to be bad when you're captured. That's when they're going to beat you with rifle butts. And to take that and just roll along with it. And then eventually they'll hand you off to a prisoner facility. And then they'll bring in the interrogators and, and teach you how to survive all that. Then the third category is even more dangerous. This is where you're visiting Moscow and you're an ex-Marine and you've been chatting with men on V-Contact, you know, young, hot Russian soldiers and sailors. And the next time you visit Moscow, uh, a married American man, by the way, and you visit Moscow and you're going to go talk to some of your contacts, the FSB, Russian security, stops you at the airport, puts a hood over your head, hog ties you and throws you in the back of a police van. You're in a situation called hostile government detention. And that is they suspect you're a spy. And the scenario I had spelled out has just happened this year to a former Marine conservative uh, who was meeting men on V contact and was talking about how he admires Russia and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't know whether he was, they didn't know whether it was seduction or whether it was him trying to m manipulate people. So the minute he landed in Moscow, they threw his, you know, threw him right into the back of a truck and they are holding him in captivity until the United States gives them something. 
And funny thing is, Donald Trump has never opened his mouth about this guy. And he's not an intelligence asset because we don't work the way that this guy worked. Uh, we don't just jump onto a plane and take vacations in Moscow, right, uh, from Dubai. That's ridiculous. He wasn't backstopped in any way. He had no system, no support structure. He wasn't an intelligence collector or an intelligence subcontractor. you know. But in Russia's estimation, I need something from Donald Trump. I will place a little pressure on the United States, and we will hold this guy until you know Maria Butina is put on an airplane and flown out of the country. Remember her? The NRA spy. And that's why she was and so away. She's now a hero over there. But if this guy gets suddenly released, it'll show you that it was a tit-for-tat exchange. And they, they take innocent people all the time and say, you are spy. You are doing your spyings here for your spy agencies. And you're just like, oh, I came here for churros. And, it's, and they go, no churros in Moscow. Only a spy would look for churros. Look, we have pictures of American spies getting churros. And it's just like, okay, it's a lie, but it's a lie designed to pressure the U.S. government. And the, Iran does it with Iranian-American citizens all the time. Turkey did it with an American priest, uh, you know, and Russia does it. So that type of detention is we the do third that? category. Do we do it? Yes. No. Why would we do that? The only people we do that people with do are that. people who are spies, right? Because one... We don't have the manpower to waste just to snatch the average Russian off the street. And why? Pressure Russia, to pressure Russia, maybe. No, why bother? You want to pressure Russia? Slow down their import of Gucci's. I mean, you know, those Economic. people, you know, tell BMW to slow the production line. They'll be very mad. <laughs> tell me about 9-11 for you. Uh, yeah. 9-11 wasn't the greatest day in my life. Um, I had been teaching counterterrorism. Actually, I had been running this class you know this classified program where, where we teach people to survive al-qaeda and we simulated al-qaeda while we were there and i had gotten out of the navy just six well, six months earlier i had that morning been visiting i had been taking someone who was going to start working for us to capitol hill and i was at um third in pennsylvania southeast and so it was about eight in the morning we got there and we were ordering coffees and a friend of mine had called me from San Diego and she was talking to me and you know, that spidey sense. Well, I don't have a spidey sense. I, you know, I used to work for NSA. I have a listening sense and I can listen. It's called listening through where you can just mentally start filtering out things that are being said. I filtered out the woman asking me for money. I filtered out my friend uh, who was on the phone and I, my ear, we call it shifting. My ear shifted to the television. And the words, the first words I heard was, well, it appears that a plane has hit the building and there's a fire, but we don't know how big it was. I thought, wait, what? And I looked to the right and you see the, the smoke from the first tower. And my first thought was, it's really a clear day. It's a really clear day. And I just thought, that's strange. And the woman's like, sir, sir, you you know, five ninety five. I paid her, and these two coffees will come back into it. I took the two coffees, I put them on the table, and I turned around, and the guy on TV says, there's reports of multiple hijackings. And in my school, we taught hijacking survival. And I thought, United States, skyjacking, that doesn't happen. There's no guns, you know? And then I thought, no, you can bring knives. And I thought, knives? 
they'll beat the living F out of you, you know? So I was standing there and I put the two coffees on the table and I'm watching the monitor and I actually walked up to it and just sat and looked at it carefully. You know, my, my, my Intel mind was kicking into gear. And then that's when the second plane flies in from the right and goes right through the building. And in that instance, I dropped my hand to my mobile phone and I speed dialed instantly this guy who was my deputy at the terrorism survival school. And this guy is now San Diego's three hours behind us. So it's like 830. So it's 530 in the morning. Right. And I knew what was happening in that instance. Airliners as cruise missiles or what we call aircraft as weapon system terrorist attack. And I was like, these cruise missiles, it's Al Qaeda. They're getting back at us for the Zawar Keeley cruise missile attack we did in 1988, right? And they're using civil airliners as cruise missiles. And I go, they've got to be flying them. They've got to be flying them, you know? And my speed dial goes on to this friend of mine who was the, who had taken over for me at the terrorism school. And if there's any one thing I learned was if there's a terrorist attack, call someone who is nowhere near the terrorist attack because you will not, phones will jam up. You will not get an objective view. And he's in San Diego. Little that I know, four guys out of San Diego are hijacking another aircraft that is now flying over Pennsylvania. And so I call him. His name's Brad. And I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm it's not too often I'm dumbfounded. But in this instance, and I knew after the USS Cole incident where I called him at four in the morning. Um, he put his phone on speaker, you know, his phone on speaker. So I knew to wait to, for it to go to voicemail. And all I could say, you know, for the message, cause he would hear it. And all I could do was shout, see, get up, get up, get up, get up. And he was just like, and he picks up the phone. He goes, Malcolm. And I'm like, shut up, CNN, 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 CNN. That's all I can say. And he's like, what? I go, shut up, CNN. He goes up, he's, you know, he turns on CNN and he's like, what the fuck is happening? I go, get up, get your shit on, go to the skiff. That's our classified facility. Get on Intel link, right? Which is our intelligence link. And uh, I said, everyone's going to be calling you. All right. Now it's about, I don't know, nine ish. I get my two coffees. My friend, I go, we got to go back to the office. We got to go to New York. And she's like, why are we going to New York? I go, this is the greatest act of terrorism in American history, if not history. Right now, we have no idea that what's going to happen next. Right, I'm just thinking the building's going to have fire. They're going to have to put it out. It's going to be terrible. Uh, and as we're driving down Independence Boulevard, we stop at the intersection where the Lincoln Memorial is to my right, and I'm looking at Arlington Cemetery and I'm listening to NPR. And as I'm listening, I see an airplane come from the west, and it goes over the Marine Corps headquarters and the Sheraton you know, uh, up near what was known as the Navy Annex back then. It's since been dismantled. And I said, oh, look, I said, they're rerouting the planes to come from the West and not over Memorial Bridge, right? And just as I said that, I go, okay, it's going to start. I'm thinking, yeah, it's going to bank right over Crystal City and go into Reagan. And the plane just kept going down, down, down and fireball, into the building and I went to the Pentagon into the Pentagon. And I, I will never forget what I said that instant. My mind went into a global map of the United States, starting on the East coast and expanding to the West coast. And it went New York Pentagon. And I said, we're under attack. We're under nationwide attack. I said, hold on. And I jammed it on the floor. 
went through the light, went right to the crash site, got out of the car, and people are starting to stream out of the Pentagon. And the whole side of the D-ring, you know, the D-ring at the helicopter pad is on fire, right? And this is before the building collapsed. It just had impact. And people are starting to come out like it's a, like a fire drill, like there's a fire there. And so I start running out, and the first injured people started coming out. And I saw this woman completely covered in dust with a baby, and the baby was dust, was covered in dust. And I had trained as an EMT, and one of the things that I had learned was crying baby good, silent baby bad, right? And so a bunch of people around, and the baby was wailing, and I was like, crying baby good. Okay, I'm going to keep moving. And as I went down towards the crash site, I said, you have to look for what we call a point of sanity. And uh, so I started looking around and then I saw this tree and at the tree was where uh, a group of people were bringing wounded people out of the D-ring right next to the crash site. So make a long story very short, uh, I saw the person who is my personal hero. I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff in my entire career and in, even in wars before and after, I think this person is just the most heroic person I ever saw. And it was a, a, a woman in an army uniform. She had her skirt, was running around in stockings, and she was creating a triage there. And then I see the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, come over, and she points to a stretcher, and him and a couple of other guys are, are putting a person on a stretcher, and they're bringing it over to her. And I said, oh, this is an army doctor. And uh, I said, hey, I'm a senior chief in civilian clothes. What can I do for you? What do you, what do you need done? She goes, senior chief, I need you to get these people mobilized. We got to start moving people out of that building. We're injured out of that building. And I said, okay, I see a Marine Sergeant and a Marine Corporal walking towards Marine headquarters. And I was like, Marine. And I go, get over here. And I go, I need you to form up everybody here into rows, get their ties off, backpacks off, hats off. We're going to go start stretcher teams. And those two Marines went over there and they were like, Rah! you know, Marines do, right? They start barking orders. And I was, and they started, people started forming up in the hundreds in lines. And I was like, hats off, coats off, backpacks off, rings off, right? And I said, teams of five, move over here, grab a stretcher, head to the D ring door. And so, you know, I got that done and we started getting the, the teams to start moving people out of the building. And I found out that the person who was running the triage was a was an was an army colonel called Lieutenant Colonel Patty Hiroha. And I found her over at the helo pad staring into the fire and she was looking for victims around the site. And I thought, no, I saw that plane fly in there and there are jet pieces everywhere around us. And next to her leg, to, to as I was looking down to her left and my right, was a six-foot disc with the letters in red, white, and blue of the letter C from American Airlines. And then the alert that there was a fourth airplane was coming. So that was essentially my 9-11 day. And every year I have pretty solid post-traumatic stress uh, on that day. Thanks to Malcolm for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality 
and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torrey and on Instagram at Torrey Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It does help. And tell your friends about the show. Torrey Show is written by me, Torrey, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down. Oh,